Well, through the uh, the surveillance is a couple of days before the shooting, we had identified, I think, three or four locations where individuals associated to this purchase were at. Because, you know, when you pick up on somebody on an initial surveillance, that only leads you to a secondary surveillance, right? They'll go to a house where three other cars are located, and then those cars will leave. So you try to follow those cars, right? So you're splitting your surveillance up, and you're expanding your investigation. Um, of course, you're doing a lot of background work as you're conducting the, uh, the surveillances, too. You're calling in license plates. You're doing criminal history checks on the people that come back to the plates. And you're finding out if you know somebody has uh, a drug trafficking background, um, whether they've had any kind of you know, criminal history, assaults, things like that. So we'd been doing that a few days. And uh, we ended up having about three or four locations that we wanted to go ahead and hit, of which one where we, we were fairly convinced there were, there were drugs, we got a search warrant for, a federal search warrant. And the assistant U.S. attorney was Lee Stapleton at that time, who we worked splendidly with. She was outstanding. And I'm, I'm friends with her today. Um, she actually wrote the forward in the Noble Experiment. So um, I, I, she, she was terrific. She was helping us work this uh, uh, search warrant. But then on the other locations, we didn't have enough PC, I suppose, to remember I'm six months on the job. I'm assuming that the call was we didn't have enough PC to get the warrant, so we were going to do the knock and talks. And a knock and talk, as I explain in the book, is, uh, is just a law enforcement tactic to um, introduce yourself to whoever you're interested in talking to and have them basically agree to open their doors and open their lives to you and tell them everything that's going on. And you would think that that's, that's a very difficult thing to do. Why would a criminal talk to a cop and admit to anything? But back in the day, you would be surprised how many people would open their doors to you and just say, hey, yeah, you can walk in, thinking that they could hide something or that we didn't know more than we did. So in that case where AD and I and a third agent went to the house for a knock and talk, we knew who the guy was, or at least we, we had his alias, and, uh, and we, but we didn't have any of his background. But we knew where he lived, what cars he drove, and, uh, but there was a lot that we didn't know about him. You know, and you talk about knock and talk people. People are really shocked when you say, why would somebody give you like consent to search a car when they know they've got 50 kilos in the back or a mm-hmm. bunch of money and stuff? Because some people get, um, they just get scared or they don't know what to do or they don't think, oh, you won't really ask. You know, you can search. Now, you, you, nobody who's guilty would allow me to search a car. You can go on. Like that would never happen. But uh, my fun trick too, as a detective, you do the knock and talk, but we'd go look through the motels and say, okay, who's checked in that fits this profile? Somebody go, this guy. So we'd go to the room and I'd kind of stand off to the side, wouldn't wear anything, you know, be dressed down, knock on the door. They said, hey, who is it? I said, it's Morgan. He said, well, who are you with? Where are you from? I said, I just came from the front desk which was literally true. I just came from the front desk and they'd open up the door. And then when they do the, Hey, by the way, garden city police, how are you doing? We're just here to check on your health and welfare. You know, you come up with some stuff, but to your point, people, it's, it's funny what people will allow you to do. Cause they don't know. Most of them don't know how to stop or say no. It's just, that's the fun part of it is, can we keep this conversation going? You know, there was, we did a controlled delivery uh, with customs that came up the Miami river, 300 kilos of Coke, Put it down into a house, down in Kendall. 
uh, sat on it for about a day and a half, and then people started arriving and taking off with boxes. And then we're doing, we got uh, Metro Day doing car stops for us and knocking off 5, 10, 15, 20 kilos at a pop. So finally, we just go up to the door and knock. We got PC for a search warrant, but, you know, that takes time. So <laughs> we just tried to knock and talk. And the guy running the house knew what he had in there. We knew what he had in there. <laughs> And he says, sure, come on in. And not only did we find our dope, we found another 200 kilos that was already in there. But we also found a room where he was uh, praying to the Santa Maria religions, gods or whatever the heck they are. And he thought that we would be blind to the 500 kilos of Coke. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's very interested that you said that because that is in my chapter, Swords Drawn, the very shooting that we're leading up to. We had the same response from this guy. You know, and I think that was a DEA disinformation op. You put that information out there to tell people if you pray to this, it's like wrapping your Coke, uh, you know, putting it in coffee grounds. Dogs can't smell it. So wrap everything in coffee grounds. This was a disinformation op, wasn't it? Come on, you guys can admit it now. I have no recollection of that, Your Honor. (laughs) I'll tell you one thing. I don't recall. I I am aware of an informant who was a Babalao, a Santero chieftain. And he would call his uh, drug trafficking guys in and he would say, I don't think this is a good week. I think you need to wait for this week and you shouldn't do it in this place. You should do it in that place. And then he would roll his eyes and blah, blah, blah. And then uh, the guys would leave and they would take his advice and the cops were right there waiting for him. (laughs) A super snitch, super snitch. <laughs> this is not a good week for you. What did I tell you? It's not going to be a good week for you. Well, yeah, um, our group, half our group's going to be on vacation next week. We don't have the manpower to do a job. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. So let's continue on the story. So you guys are working this up. Um, you get the search warrant. How do you guys, what's your op plan like? What are you preparing to do? Yeah, so with the search warrant being executed at uh, location A, location B and C, agents were going to go in conduct knock and talk interviews, see if we can get inside the the locations, take a look around. In our case, we knew we were going to arrest uh, the, the, the perp's name was Sammy. He was the guy that lived at that location. We had put him down at that location in Miami Lakes, Florida, and uh, which is quite close to, to, you know, Miami proper. And um, so it was myself and A.D. Wright, my partner, and a third agent. And um, we ended up uh, maybe meeting for lunch a few miles away, uh, went through the ops plan as it pertained to that house. The same things were happening in other locations simultaneously. And uh, then you get, you know, behind uh, some grocery store. You guys can relate to this. You just roll behind because I'm grocery store and uh, you pop your trunk, you load up, uh, you put your vests on, your raid jackets. And then we proceeded to the house in coordination with the other guys doing it at the same time. Was it all DEA or did you have some task force folks, uh, Miami, you know, data? I mean, anybody else besides DEA in on this? In in our particular group, we had a three or four, uh, what we called the uh, Metro Dade at the time, Miami-Dade uh, detectives that were assigned to our group. So we had them with us, but none of them were at our location with the other, with, with my other two, uh, agents. So let's be clear. You're talking about you're, you're, you're going to three locations. One has a search warrant. The other two are knock and talk. Is that right? That's right. 
And which location are you going to? The one with the search warrant or one of the knock and talks? One of the knock and talks. And it was one of the guys that we had put down. He had picked up some precursors and drove them away. And he had drove them to that house. So we knew for a fact, as recent as, you know, that morning and and certainly before, that some of the chemicals were going to that house. And it was in a country club, man. This wasn't like a farm. Miami Lakes is quite an impressive community. And this was the Miami Lakes Country Club. This, this was, this, these were beautiful homes. Why'd you elect to do a knock and talk instead of getting a search warrant? In that case, I'm not sure I, I could remember exactly. Plus, I was an extreme junior agent. I just think it came down to the, the ease of, uh, of, of meeting the guy and getting the guy to uh, open up. Because I guess we weren't, we hadn't set permanently uh, a permanent surveillance on that house. So it was possible that the precursor chemicals had been moved to a subsequent location. And, but we didn't know. So in the ops plan, it was set up. We were going to make the, uh, the, the initial arrests at the search warrant location where we thought dope was at, which turned out it was. But there were a couple of other locations where we had put some chemicals down or the people who picked up the chemicals put them down, and we were going to go ahead and snag them. And Sammy, the guy who we had identified at this location, was one of those people. And I'll admit, I wish I, I wish we had not done it that way. I wish it weren't a knock and talk because, as you'll hear, it turned out you know, to be something quite dangerous for us all. And that's that's why I wanted to make sure we kind of cleared that up, because at this point, like you say, you're the junior guy. You're just uh, you're doing kind of what you're told. You're learning the ropes at this point. When you went in, how many cases do you think that you had made at that point? You know, like how many arrests or, you know, what was your level of activity prior to this day? Oh, I'd probably made 20 arrests in combination with other agents in group four. Says we were a very busy group at that time out on the street constantly. So I had made quite a few arrests, but I had not encountered anyone who who wanted to shoot at me. Now let's let's set the stage. Let's set the environment. So tell us about the time of day. Um, how many people are going to this? Just you and AD? You know, more people. So kind of kind of if you were describing a setting, what what did this look like? Time of day, environment. You know, who's there? How many people? Uh, it was just myself, AD, and a third agent. And I'll refer to him as Juan. Um, I couldn't identify him by name in the book because I couldn't get hold of him and get his permission. Um, so I just used a pen name. So it was just the three of us. So we went uh, went to some shopping center about five miles away. You know, we went ahead dressed up, got our vests on, got our uh, ray jackets on, our belts tight. And uh, proceeded out there, stated, uh, as you know, what you would normally do, stay a couple of blocks away until everyone was ready to, to, to execute the knock and talks and the search warrant in sync. Because you didn't want one group calling another one, right? And saying, hey, we're being hit, run. What time of day was it? It was about um, 2 o'clock, I think, 2 to 2.30 in the afternoon. Yeah, it was top of the afternoon. All right. So, uh, you guys, so now the, the, the plan, everything's starting to execute. So, so walk us through what happened. So, uh, we, we walk up to the front door, we park, um, uh, block the driveway. There was a vehicle in the driveway. So we blocked it on the road and then pulled in 
directly behind. So there were there were three cars. All three of us had our separate official government vehicles. And um, you know, you need, it's you know when you do a knock and talk, there's two ways to to approach it. You don't want to use too much of an overwhelming presence because you think that might make the individual feel a little uncomfortable and it shuts them down. They don't want to cooperate. But at the same time, you want them to know that there's enough people here that they shouldn't try to pull a gun. They shouldn't try to resist. They should, they should simply just engage in conversation and then they can decide for themselves whether they want to let you in or not. Um, and uh, we had three vehicles there. We walked up, knocked on the door. I knew that the guy only spoke broken English from the report coming uh, from the source of supply and uh, of the chemical company. So um, I was the only one who spoke broken Spanish. I'd not yet been to Spanish language school. So I was being self-taught. I was trying to learn and I spoke very, very little. I had minored in Spanish in college, but you know how that goes. You know, you might be able to order a beer if you're lucky. But uh, ask where the bathroom is. Damn right. That's the important things. uh, Both of those (laughs) are very important. And they're and and they're not, you know, extrinsic to one another either, are they? They're related. So (laughs) they they are interwoven. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So um, he opens up the door and uh, he's got nothing uh, on but a pair of um, of long uh, like gym pants. Right. Sweats, gym sweats that that have the uh, the the tie waist. Right. Uh, he was barefooted, he was bare chested, had nothing in his hands. Uh, it looked like he had basically just gotten up from a nap or something. And uh, uh, I basically engaged since I had some Spanish. I engaged with him to identify if he was uh, uh, the guy we thought he was, Sammy, which he looked kind of confused at once. But he was pretty he was pretty relaxed, right? He didn't look like he was like uh, twitchy or anything. So, uh, he said, yeah, yeah. He says, I'm, I'm Sammy. And, uh, what do you guys want? And, uh, we basically told him that we had reports that some chemicals were here and, uh, we're the chemical police and we just needed to go in and see if, uh, everything was safe. And see uh, if they were being properly stored, you know, in the right kind of containers, because you right. care about the environment, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. That's right. We I didn't say we were, you know, EPA or anything. I just said we were the chemical police. Keep in mind, he understands very little English. So right then we were kind of just basically getting through hand signs and making each other understand. And he just gave us permission to come in. I said, I'd like to come in so we make sure that everything is uh, the way it should be. Would you mind if we come in? And he said, sure, no problem. No problemo. And he opened the door and we walked in. And uh, the first thing, and and I can remember this like it was yesterday. The first thing I saw was everything was white, snow white. Yeah, the, the the walls were white. The the tile on the floor was white. The furniture was white. The pictures were white. Everything was white. I mean, like you were almost blinded by whiteness when you walked in this place. And I later found out the reason why. And uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. But at that point, I just had a feeling that I wanted to go check the garage because if chemicals were in the house. They had to be in the garage, 
right? Just, just by virtue, the mere size and scope of volume of space that would be required to store them. So <clears throat> I went into the garage to look. Hey, real quick, Dave, when you walked in, did you see anybody else in the house? Was there any, any indication other than Sammy, anybody else was in the house? Yeah, yeah. His, uh, his uh, paramour, a woman of about maybe 55 years of age, was in there, and her two grandchildren, who were like, I think they were twin girls. They were like four years old. So he was acting very calm, like... You know, he had nothing going on, didn't mind if cops came in. This this mature woman is in there. Um, I think she was in there feeding the kids. They were at the table, two four-year-old girls. I mean, it it seemed like it was going to basically be a flop for us that we weren't going to find anything just, just because of, you know, the, the profile of what we were seeing. Was there anything that raised the hairs on the back of your neck? You know, was a red flag for you at all? Or was this just kind of like, like you said, it looks like it's going to be a bust. I mean, a flop, not a bust in the bust sense, but like, yeah, we're not going to get anything. Well, there were two things. And then there was a major third thing. The first, first thing was when he opened up the door and he looked directly at me, he had those shark eyes. He had brownish, almost blackish eyes that almost like went past you, right through you, right? He looked like he had no feeling in there. I don't know if anyone else has experienced that, but it, it was, I mean, you've seen the perp shots where somebody has, is a serial murderer or whatever, and you see their eyes, right? You know, their mug shot, and you just see no feeling in their eyes. I felt that. I felt like there was really very, very, a very cold look in his eyes, but the way he behaved was perfectly normal at that time. <clears throat> the second thing was all that whiteness. I'd never seen a house where there was no color whatsoever. There wasn't a beige pillow. There wasn't a, a blue picture or anything, man. It was just white everywhere. And I later found out that had to do with his Santeria beliefs, his, the belief of his pagan gods. I think you're mooted. I am because the wife came home and she was opening up, you know, refrigerator doors and I didn't want to make a sound. Gosh, <laughs> here I go. Now, now, now I'm the one having the technical difficulties. Jeez. Well, thank goodness Dave was here to tell you about it. Thank goodness I had your thank help you, there, Dave. I mean, my God, where would we be? I'd still be on mute. Um, I owed you one. Yeah, <laughs> you did. Except it only took two seconds for me to correct my problem. Um, hey, it's a brotherhood. Yeah. Hey, but you said Centuria. Tell everybody, explain just a little bit about what that means, why, you know, what it means to them or, you know, what, what this is. Uh, this is a voodoo type religion or a belief that derived from West Africa uh, centuries ago. And uh, it had... Uh, uh, migrated, the belief had migrated along with some of the people to parts in the Caribbean to include C Cuba. Um, this guy was Cuban. Uh, we later found out that he was one of the Mariel boat lift individuals. Oh, great. And that, as you know, was during the Carter administration when uh, the President Carter had decided he was going to receive um, and and legalize uh, anyone who left Cuba at that time. So 
Fidel Castro being the... Emptied the prisons. He emptied the prisons and the mental institutions and combination of both. And, uh, and we had tens of thousands. Well, if you've ever watched Scarface, I think it's one of the first scenes, right? Um, and um, he was one of those guys that showed up. So um, I forgot why I was telling that part of the story. Where were we at? Oh, you were talking about him being Cuban, you know, and what it meant. And he was one of the. Oh, Maria, Santeria, uh, uh, right. Okay, so, Santeria, yeah. so he was one of the guys who had this belief in pagan gods. And, um, and one of the things is that in certain, at certain times you wear nothing but white, or if you're surrounded by nothing but white, you're protected. And, um, uh, I didn't really know much about Santeria, the Santeria uh, religion or following, but I learned a lot after that because it turns out that this guy was a very serious uh, Santeria follower. And uh, we later found out that that's why this shooting was so dangerous for, uh, for all of us. All right. So you said you said there were two things and then a third major thing. So the first thing were the shark eyes, right? And right. the second thing was all the white. Right. And then when I broke to go to the garage, A.D. and Juan, uh, the pseudonym agent, they actually accompanied Sammy, who we had identified as Sammy, um, throughout the house, right? Let's look in the room to the left. Let's look into the room at the right. So they're looking with Sammy, and I'm in the garage. As soon as I open up the garage door, I get this experience explosive, no pun intended, aroma, odor hitting me of acetone and ether that's sitting in there. And I look to my left, and of course, I see 55-gallon drums of both ether and acetone and other chemicals up against the wall. On the right side, I see this shrine, this Santeria shrine, which I had seen in a few other homes in the past six months that we had served search warrants on because there were a lot of in drug traffickers that were actually Santeria followers. So I knew what we had there, but it was, it was really, really eerie to know that we had this guy with all these, these, these volatile chemicals and he had like candles set up. You know, right here at the shrine. Now, the candles weren't burning, but <laughs> they had been burned, it looked like, you know. if, if Wait a minute. They're burning oh candles God. next to the acetone and everything else, the and, ether? And the, the ether. ether, yeah, the drums. Now, the drums were sealed, but all it takes is one one small leak, and, buddy, you would have, boom, the big one. <laughs> Kaboom. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That white wouldn't have protected his ass from that. I can guarantee you. No, it would have turned black, uh, charred black very quickly. I can assure you. Right as I saw that shrine, that's when I heard AD yell at me, Davey's running. And of course, I assumed he was talking about Sammy. So I turned around and I made a beeline back to where AD won. And Sammy had been located last, which was the other side of the house. How big of a house was this? So when you were saying, like, are we talking about, like, you know, kind of put it in perspective, you know, would we think of it as being like six rooms, seven room, you know, kind of bedroom on a main floor? How big of a house was this? Yeah, it was your typical single floor stucco Florida home, but it was large. It had like probably five or six bedrooms and it had a massive living room 
that separated the garage a couple of rooms from the bedrooms on the other side of the house where AD and Sammy and the other agent were located. So I'm going back there, and as soon as I approach where they're at, as I get across the living room, uh, I see the woman, Sammy's lady friend, making a beeline and screaming at the top of her lungs out the front door with the two kids following suit. Uh, One was chasing them behind them as they were leaving and screaming. Uh, I only realized, I didn't at the time, but I realized now this lady realized what was about to happen. She knew who Sammy was. She knew what he was capable of doing. And she knew when he ran into a bedroom that, you know, all hell was about to break loose. So she went out, she, uh, the kids went out and Juan V is out there with them. So it's AD who's, uh, basically, um, grabs some cover on a corner of the house and he is on the left side of the corner looking to his right. And then this was a hallway. What had happened is as AD and, uh, Joe V were one V were, uh, moving into the uh, hallway, Sammy just made a run for it. He broke it and he ran into the room and, um, and he locked the door. So, um, we realized that either he was trying to flee out the window or he was arming himself and he was going to fight, um, or he was basically going to sit there and, and kill himself. Now, could be one of the three. Take your pick. So AD and I were on each side of that hallway looking down, and it was probably about a 12-foot hallway. And um, AD said a couple of things to him, like, Sammy, it's not worth it. Come out. We can talk about this. No big issue. And uh, the door slowly uh, opened. And when it did, neither one of us saw him, but we did see the barrel of a gun on the floor pointed directly at us. And uh, we realized that uh, Sammy had gotten into a prone position, had found his own cover, and was about to engage with us. So when you said you saw a weapon, you, was it like a long gun? Was it a rifle or more a handgun? Or could you, could you tell when you looked at it at that point what kind of weapon it was? It was a handgun. We didn't know at the time it was a Walter PPK 380, which is a relatively small uh, caliber, but uh, it was uh, definitely a handgun. So we're, we're looking, AD's looking around to the right. As soon as you see a gun barrel, you know, you really, <laughs> your sense of cover becomes much more important, right? So now as we're talking, we're doing Israeli peaks, you know, little peaks and then falling back behind the corner. And on the second uh, occasion that AD did an Israeli peak, uh, Sammy fired uh, anticipating that he would be more or less at that height. And uh, he missed AD, but he hit the wall that AD was looking around. The bullet ricocheted, and then it went straight through his right eyeball and came out over his uh, right ear, oh, injuring man. AD quite, uh, quite seriously. So he fell. How many shots were fired? Oh, before he had even made that shot, he had already shot a couple of rounds into the wall down the... Uh, uh, down the hallway. So we knew we were in the shit. 
right? We knew we had an issue, and we were simply trying to uh, to basically de-escalate and calm it down. Um, I had already fired one round with my uh, my weak hand uh, because I was on the right side of of the hallway, and um, it it I mean it all happened. I'm explaining it as if it happened in minutes, but it all happened within ten seconds, right? Everything happened so quickly. He had cranked off a few rounds. I had returned with my weekend. AD was talking to him. I was trying to talk to him. AD did two Israeli peaks on the second one. He shot that round, and the ricochet round went right through AD's head, you know, having him fall immediately. Um, at that point, I fired a couple of more times, and as I did that, uh, I heard AD which of course I knew he said, Dave, I've been hit. And, um, man, I'm telling you, that was at a very, uh, brief moment when all the, you feel all the pressure of the world on your shoulders when your partner is lying there defenseless, albeit temporarily, but he was defenseless at that moment. And, uh, I was the only one that was standing between him and the guy who was trying to kill him. When AD got hit, did he fall out of cover or did he fall behind cover? Was he exposed when he fell down after he got hit? Both. He kind of fell and his legs were in the line of fire, but most of his body was out of the line of fire because that hallway was like, um, was, was juxtaposed to another hallway that went down to several bedrooms, a bathroom, things like that. So there was some room right there where those two hallways came together and, but his legs were still there. And this guy was hell bent on finishing AD. So at that very moment, like I said, I was firing with my weekend and, uh, at that moment I realized, man, I, I, I need I need to fire from my strong hand. So with AD's most of AD's body uh, covered, um, I stepped across the hallway into another wood frame where I was able to look a little bit farther down the hallway, but um, but not all the way to the door. I was able to switch to my strong hand, which is right hand, my right hand. And I was able to have cover and then cover AD in case this guy came up, which he did in only a few seconds. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I, I missed. I, I Well, I did. You know, Morgan, I missed I missed a pretty important piece. And that was as as I was firing and as I was backing up and relocating to use my strong arm instead of my weak arm, uh, AD had crawled into a neighboring room, which was probably in, in this. So his feet were completely out of the line of fire at that time, but it wasn't in the beginning. And what I was going to ask you too, it's the other thing too, is because you're equipped now, the other thing too, we got to keep into context here is you're equipped with a revolver, not a semi-automatic, even though you talked earlier about having a semi-automatic, you're shooting a revolver. So those things got six rounds. So part of the, part of the thought process, right, is how many rounds have I gone through? I mean, did you reload? What was what were you thinking about in terms of your discipline about shooting and about the available rounds you had left? Well, I I knew that I had shot two rounds on a six round revolver. Um, I did have a um, 
a reload. I did have reloads, but I also had that semi-auto in the small of my back, and I wasn't going to spend time to reload. I was going to pull that if I needed to. Uh, I knew that. However, um, it just all happened so fast. I cannot really tell you honestly whether I knew how many bullets I had shot or not. Uh, I knew I had shot, but I could, you know, I mean, I wasn't thinking in terms of whether I'd shot two, three. I mean, this was my first shooting. And frankly, I mean, everything shuts down, right? I mean, I didn't hear the, the pops of the guns. And if you've ever shot a 357 Magnum with plus P ammo, you know how damn loud it is. And we were in a house, you know, practically in a hallway and I didn't hear anything. So my hearing had shut down. I was simply viewing as closely as I can at the threat. And, uh, yeah, everything seemed to be moving in slow motion. So all those descriptions of, of immediate, you know, traumatic experiences came into play in my case. And, um, I, I just knew that if I ran out, I was going to pull, you know, my semi from, from my back. Turns out I didn't need to do that because as AD had drug himself to a neighboring room and I had relocated across the hallway and turned to my strong arm, it was about that time that Sammy came running down the hallway, firing away, and he was firing in the direction of AD. So when he came into my view, he was pointed toward AD in that direction, and he was firing. I'm assuming, thinking, I've got to finish off this guy. And I had a direct 90-degree visual at Sammy. So I went ahead and fired a couple of rounds and I hit him uh, on his left side and he began to start spinning around to me and he fired a couple of rounds. Uh, I heard, you know, the crackle of the drywall and the whistling of the bullets right above my left ear and uh, AD was able to shoot around uh, and that round went directly and i'm not sure how close he was but it wasn't more than probably two or three feet and and this was with one you know the sight of one eye right at this time and probably being you know in in uh, uh almost in shock in shock at this time right so um he hit sammy on the right side of the rib cage and that's when sammy went down so um i knew i had um or at I didn't know, but it turned out I had two more rounds and, uh, I had shot four AD had shot, um, a couple, I believe at that, at that time, Sammy was down on the ground on his back, looking toward AD and still trying to raise his pistol to shoot at AD. He didn't act like he even knew that he was, he was already dead. And, um, I was still in the covered position. So I, uh, you know, a revolver, you, you, you have to, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not a single shot, right? A revolver, you have to pull the trigger back, not the trigger, you have to cock, and then you have to basically, you know, pull the trigger if you want a good soft shot. So that's what I did. I took my time. I was probably about maybe six feet from Sammy. His feet were in my direction closest to me. His head was away from me, and he was pointing looking to his right and pointing the weapon up at AD. So I just took my time and 
I finished him. I gave him two, uh, trying to actually hit him in the head or below the chin. And I missed both times. I actually hit him in the lower abdomen, but the, the plus P rounds went through his uh, torso and, and pretty much hit every organ that was in his torso. So that finished him off once and for all. From from beginning to end, from the time you guys knocked on the door until this shooting happened, how long of a time was that? From the time that the shooting actually ended from we walking through the door was probably not more than six minutes. Shit hits the fan quick and escalates quicker, even quicker, doesn't it? It did. It did. Um, I There's, there's a, a pretty cool... Um, uh, a statement that uh, one of my old partners in group four, Alex Dominguez, who I believe Steve knows, uh, Alex wrote, wrote his own book and he described that scene and, and how he wrote it was, and, and I liked it. it. It was that Sammy was slowly walking down the hall towards the puddle of blood left by AD gun in hand, arm extended, ready to finish it off his victim. In Sammy's mind, he already had won the battle. He slightly turns the hallway corner and realizes there's nothing lying there but a smear of blood and lead- that's leading to another room. At that moment, all the pagan gods and Santeria bullshit that was protecting him must have been at the buffet line getting seconds because he'd arrived at his come-to-Jesus moment and was about to find out he'd screwed with the wrong dudes. Oh, I love it, man. You got <laughs> We got to get Alex on here. I like the way he. I like the way he phrased that. Yeah, at the buffet line. Hey, now one other thing though. Even though AD rep- repositioned himself, did Sammy have any indication that you had repositioned yourself from what would have been your weak hand to your strong hand side? Did he see that? Do no. you think? No, he had no idea that I'd done that. Yeah, all he knew was that AD was injured. And he was going after to finish him off. Uh, it, you know, he, he wasn't even looking at me. He never even, you know, looked to his left, peered over at me as he was approaching AD. It was like he was on an assignment. And then, of course, we found out through the homicide detectives and one of the Metro Dade detectives that showed up on the crime scene who knew a lot about Santeria that... Uh, he was looking at some of the things on doors and above windows that he thought he was invisible to police, that he had completely protected his domain from the threat of police and that he was invisible and that he couldn't be hurt, much less killed. So that was a, that was a fairly formidable opponent to have to deal with somebody who thinks they're invisible and can't, and can't be killed, mm-hmm. but he could. An idiot. Yeah. <laughs> and he yeah. was like Pablo. He's room temperature, which is a good um, a good state of condition for somebody like him. But let's talk about the immediate aftermath. So you fire your final shots. Sammy's down. What do you do next? Because you, you've obviously got an injured partner. Well, the first thing I did is I threw or holstered my revolver and I did pull that semi-automatic out and I slowly approached Sammy. Um. Of course, he was lifeless at that point, and, uh, but he still had his hand on his firearm. So I kicked the firearm out of his hand, and, uh, and I didn't like the fact that Sammy was still looking in the direction of AD. So I just, with my foot, I nudged his face from one side to the other so he would look the other way. Not sure why I did that. 
other than thinking I just didn't like the fact that he was still trying to stare at my partner. His eyes were open, of course. And um, and then by then was was he was he dead by then? You yeah, think? yeah, he was. Yeah, he was dead. He he was not moving. I mean, because of the chest wounds, there was a lot of, of as you know. What they call like agonal respiration agonal or something like the death rattle. Yeah, exactly. There was a lot of death rattle going on and uh and and that kind of gurgling sound that you hear. But uh but no, uh, there was no breathing. The man was was dead. He had passed. And um at that time we actually uh we saw one V come back in. Um the late the the lady and and he had the lady and kids with him, and um, they were told to sit in another room, which they did. And the only thing I could concentrate on was caring for uh, for AD. So one uh, V and I we basically sat AD into one of those beautiful white leather chairs, which wasn't white very long uh, from uh, AD's head injury. And uh, believe it or not, like an angel falling from the sky. A medical doctor who had been working in a trauma center in Miami lived across the street, and he was home during this shooting. So he happened to just walk, like I said, like an angel falling from the sky. He came right through the door, and he began immediate triage on AD, and very well, could have been the reason AD survived it. So Brother, did he hear the gunshots? You're doing the Lord's work when you get an angel comes along like that. Yeah. At that did very he hear minute. the shooting going on? Is that why he showed up? He did. He did. He heard the shooting. He sure, he heard the shots. But he also knew from our. We have these plates that we would put on our dashes that would identify U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, and he knew from the plates. And from the blue lights that were sitting high on the dash, that we were law enforcement in some capacity. So after the shooting stopped, he knew he had a situation. He had a police shooting. And uh, he came right through the door, and he immediately started to triage AD and control um, you know, his shock and uh, everything that was going on. I mean, two things had happened at that moment. Number one, we knew AD was severely hurt. Uh, I mean, I only saw like an eye that was closed, right? The the eye that was injured was simply closed and it looked like somebody had slapped him in the side of the head with a baseball bat. There was tremendous swelling and, uh, but you didn't see an exit wound. Uh, you know, the, there was no indication that the bullet had gone directly through the eye. Uh, but the swelling and all I think had, um, uh, had helped to to stop some of the immediate bleeding, and that doctor being there and helping him made a huge difference. Uh, you know, controlling shock more than anything. Um, but on his, uh, I, I I removed his uh, bulletproof vest and immediately saw, which I have a photo in the book of, in the in the vest you see one of Sammy's 380 shots actually landed dead center in his chest. So. At that point that he was approaching AD and AD was getting back up off of from dragging himself at that one moment when I he came into my line of fire and I was shooting the two of them were firing on one another and he hit AD a second time mid chest right where his heart is, but the vest stopped it.
Damn. See, Murph, when you go do raids, you wear a vest. Um, isn't that something you learned in a shooting? Learned that the hard way, unfortunately. Yeah. That was uh, it's Kevin Stevens. Um, almost so much similarities in that. But here's the one question I have, though, and this would have, I mean, I don't know how he handled it. That doc had to have a lot of balls because you've just got, there's shooting going on. He obviously knows your cops. If I see somebody walking in the door like that, my first thought is you're another, I mean, you're another bad actor. You're a tango. Um, I'm surprised he walked in like that and somebody didn't at least take him down or, you know, uh, down, you know, yeah. Well, there were only, there were, yeah. I, I was just focusing on, I, all I know is he came running up right to us. Had he had a gun and, and, and went after us, he probably would have, would have succeeded because my focus was just on AD sitting in that chair and, and he just ran up and he said, I'm a doctor. Let me help. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that could have been another, you know, quite serious situation, but thank God it was that angel who came from, from the hospital as opposed to, uh, another, not only that, he's not a dentist and he's not a podiatrist and he's not a chiropractor. He's a fricking trauma surgeon Mm -hmm. and probably has worked gunshots. I would say probably a few hundred times being, you know, that was the heyday of this stuff. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And as Steve knows, AD benefited greatly from that doctor's work because he stayed on the job. He continued to excel on the job and then eventually became the special agent in charge of the Miami field division. Did he Um, retire this year or last year? Oh, I think he retired uh, maybe two years ago. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. Time travels fast. Let's rewind a little bit. Let's finish up on the shooting because there's always an aftermath, right? So, um, you had, uh, you had your guys there, obviously once this gets called out, you know, the reinforcements come, you know, the cavalry comes, tell us about getting AD to the hospital and everything. In other words, was, uh, you know, they get him loaded up pretty fast. Did you guys have medical close, you know, how did that part of it work getting him to care? I'm assuming that the doctor who responded, the angel doctor, he had called 911 as this was all going on. I also know that uh, the other agent, one V, had got on our radio. We had these rather large, ridiculously looking club-like radios at that Whips. time, and he, he, yeah, he looked like a suitcase. He got on the radio. self-defense weapons. Yeah, <laughs> he got on the radio immediately. Of course, we were you know, we had repeater stations. So we were talking to everybody who was involved in that operation simultaneously. One V was able to call for help. So by then, you know, it's like the cavalry was coming in, right? Uh, it didn't take very long for a, um, an air, uh, evac unit from the local trauma hospital to show up, park right on the road and, uh, get AD on a gurney and get him in the, uh, the helicopter. In fact, in fact, at the time, Um, there were a lot of people showing up, news crews somehow had gotten there rather quickly. And, uh, as AD was being gurneyed toward the helicopter, he just gave everybody a thumbs up and there was a huge cheer, you know, um, even the media, which caught the moment were cheering. And then he was, uh, off to the hospital and then it was just, you know, processing the crime scene. You had everybody there. You had, uh, you know, Florida department of law enforcement, uh, Miami Dade, uh, DEA, FBI, um, even Lee Stapleton, our AUSA showed up. Who handled the shooting investigation? 
That was Miami-Dade homicide. Because uh, I rather imagine this one would have been a rather easy one to do. But what did you learn after the shooting? Because there's a, the reason I was asking you, what's your familiarity with weapons? And it was just a story I read. And I, I'd have to go back and look at it. But there was a, a place where two officers, and this just happened like in the last 24 hours when we're recording this. They confronted an armed suspect who is a homicide suspect, had just shot and killed somebody. Um, and he's running them. He turns around. And what would you do if you had a homicide suspect armed turn around and point a gun at you? I mean, that's a lethal force situation. Absolutely. You're going to fire. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. They didn't. Neither one of these off. Neither one of these officers shot. And in fact, one of them tried to deploy his taser at the guy and it failed. He ended up escaping, fired a few more shots and was killed by another department. Two officers who took this guy out. The reason I say that is they resigned and they go, hey, look, we just couldn't use lethal force. You know, we just couldn't do this. And it's like, well, then you picked the wrong profession then, Skippy. Um, because the reason I asked you that is part of the conditioning, part of the training, because you mentioned you talked about shooting with your weak hand. Uh, I know a lot of cops out there that go through training. They go, why do we got to do this for, exi for exactly that? Maybe you're not on the right angle. Maybe your right arm gets injured, like with Kevin Stevens, you know, mm -hmm. maybe your hand, maybe you can't do that. You've got to be able to shoot with both hands. How much, how much did that training contribute to your success? Everything. It was everything. And fortunately I was only six months out from that training. So it was still relatively new in, in my mind set and, and physically, um, you know, I thank God that I didn't have to go through that kind of shooting in such close proximity um, five years, 10 years after I'd left the academy. It was only six months. So everything just clicked right back into the training that I had received for what, 18 weeks, something like that. And, and yeah, I mean, I could shoot a Nats ass at 50 yards that we had to qualify on the 50 yard uh, range, right? We had six shots you know, from the 50 yard line and we had to get every one of them in there. So, uh, yeah, I was really lucky that this all happened quite frankly, when I was so young and, uh, it was so close to having received that training and, and, and I didn't think about it. You know, I didn't think any about it. It just looks like your question about, did you know how many bullets you had and all? I just, no, I just responded directly to what I needed to do, engaged with that, uh, that threat and, um, and just, Finished it through. Yeah. Didn't think twice you about know, it. It's estimated that when a, when a DE agent graduates the academy, he has already fired approximately 10,000 rounds through his duty weapon. Because the weapon you shoot in the academy is the weapon you're going to take on the street. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And you know we did because we had to pick up every one of those son of a bitch brass. <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> had to police your brass. You know, but, but see, but that, that brings up an interesting point too because. Steve, I think we brought this up on a previous episode, but there was an officer, off-duty officer. He was there for a robbery or a shooting, and the guy had the gun. He was able to disarm the suspect and actually had the gun, but because of the training, the way they did training, every time you did that, what would you automatically do after you disarmed it? You'd turn around, you'd hand it back to the instructor. He disarmed the suspect, turned around, and handed it back to the suspect, and the suspect shot and killed him. Oh, jeez. Wow. I hadn't heard that story. 
Yeah, I, I that came up. And so it's one of those things. But see, that's the training. We think about this and we don't think about the implications of training. It's like, remember, the FBI changed their training because their officers or, or I mean, their agents, one of their agents was killed, still holding mm-hmm. brass in his hand because yeah, he was dumping fire. brass into his hand to dump into the can instead yep. of reloading. Yeah, that way you didn't have to run, run around and pick it up out of the grass. Yeah. Jeez. And the reason I just bring that up is that people don't realize when you go through that much training, we talk to, you want to talk to a stud, you ought to listen to the episode we did, episode uh, 69 or no, 70, I think, Kevin Holland. And the guy was SEAL Team 6, Army Special Mission Unit, also known as Delta. You know, and it's just like when you when you listen to these guys and the training and the stuff they go through, if you don't think training's not important... I just want folks to listen to your thing because six months out of the academy, we talked to Claudia Claudia Polinar, less than a year Mm -hmm. out of the academy. She's involved in a training. Here's this L.A. sheriff's deputy shot through the face, in the arm, her partner shot. She's shot in the face, bleeding. She can't even talk, but yet she's got the presence of mind to cover him and still get a tourniquet on his arm. Save his life. Yeah, save his life. It all comes back to training. And if it's the fresher the training or the more routine and often you, you do it, frequently you do it, the better you're going to respond in any kind of traumatic situation. I heard it said one time, training is like bathing. Neither one is permanent. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I never heard that saying, but it must be a Kansas saying. I don't know. Well, look, if you ever spent time on, on an airplane, on an international flight with somebody who hasn't bathed in a while, you know oh what I'm gosh. talking about. I flew, in, I flew into Kabul, Afghanistan. <laughs> It's like riding with a plane full of goats and sheep. Well, Pakistan, try Pakistan too. It's like, what is that smell? Ooh. My God. Hey, well, let's let's talk about the aftermath. Let's let's take a bathroom break. Oh, you want to take a bathroom break? Hold on, let me put this <laughs> on pause. Pee. Yep. So let's talk about the aftermath now. Um, uh, AD gets out there. I mean, I am so surprised. This is Miami. A lot of shit's going on, but you got a doctor that shows up. You got uh, the the medevac helicopter shows up. He gets, obviously, it sounds like he gets carted out pretty quickly, gives him a good chance for survival. So let's let's talk about the aftermath of what happened with AD. Yeah, sure. Um, of course, he was immediately taken to the trauma center. Um they found out rather quickly that he needed specific care at uh, the, uh, I think it was called the Jackson Palmer, was it Palmer Eye Institute, uh, right in downtown Miami. Uh, if, I, if I'm wrong about that, the name, uh, I don't know. It's, I know it's something Palmer, but uh, he had immediate professional surgeon care, and they were able to like, clean up. Uh, for lack of better terms, clean up what all damage was was going on so that he could be fitted with a prosthetic eye. And um, even though that wasn't initially, that wasn't immediately done, within a couple of weeks, they were able to put him, you know, uh, uh, with a a prosthesis fitting and uh, he just kept on rolling, man. But before that, I'll have to tell you this story. It's, It's pretty good. A couple of days after, we went to the hotel, uh, the uh, hospital room, and um, where AD was at, uh, he had been released from uh, critical care, and uh, I was there with uh, uh, my supervisor and the associate special agent in charge, um, named Charlie Lutz, who um, who Charlie was the type of guy who everybody kind of looked up to in a big way is that authority 
you know, because he didn't really, he didn't, he didn't really screw around very much. In fact, his nickname was Iceman. Uh, he didn't smile a whole lot, but, uh, he was that kind of guy when, when you knew he said something, he meant it. So he's in there very serious and, um, and he was just about to leave. So I'm in there with, with my supervisor and Charlie and Charlie asked AD says, AD, before I leave, is there anything that I can do for you? And, uh, AD just kind of looked up with this big fat patch on his right eye. And he, in a perfect impersonation of Ronald Reagan, he says, well, yeah, I guess you could have Ronnie call me. And everybody cracked up in the room. It was a light moment yeah. and that's AD, right? <laughs> Well, the question is, did, did Ronnie call him? I don't know if Ronnie called him or not. Probably not. But uh, I knew he was really worried. Uh, AD was still very worried about whether or not he would be able to continue as a special agent um, with only one, you know, the side of one eye. So um, as time went on, he had to get back up. He had to qualify, which he did. And he never slowed down. He did an international... Uh, uh, deployment or assignment in the Bahamas. Um, he uh, had a number of uh, supervisory assignments throughout the United States to include, I believe, in San Antonio, Texas. And then eventually he made it back in uh, high uh, um, SES management uh, in Miami. He was the special agent in charge. That's pretty, uh, it's like Kevin, he came back, you know, that right arm's all screwed up, but he taught himself to right left-handed to shoot. That became his primary arm, his left arm. You know, I mean, that's that's determination, and that's that's the love that our people have for the job that they want to come back to help others. It's a testament to their commitment. Yeah, very it's, amazing. When you look back and you reflect on that day, uh, Dave, um, what lessons do you give? Because look, the more I find out, I, I I'm humbled and honored. We get so many, you know, people listening to us, but we get a lot of cops listening to us too, men and women, people who are in the profession thinking about getting into the profession or thinking about leaving the profession. I can't tell you how many people are like, I can't take it anymore. But reflecting back on this stuff, well, what's some important, you know, here, you've got, you've got, you had how many years on DEA? You said 25? Yeah, overall I had 25. Yeah, plus. When you look back on that day, what's, what's the big lesson for you? Well, you know, I also talk about that in this very chapter, but toward the end of it is not, not only is training, so very important, as we had just discussed. You have to go through your training, and you have to train in the same way that you do your job, right? You have to take it that serious. Uh, do some combative training. You know, move your body as you're shooting. Uh, if you can, have the targets moving to some degree, uh, because I, I can tell you, there's a high degree of probability that whoever's shooting at you is going to be moving and not just sitting there waiting for you to shoot them. But then after the smoke has settled and the dust is settled and, um, and you know, people are being taken care of, you, you have to understand that something like this can actually be a PTSD moment. And you have to reflect on that. And you just don't turn your back on that, right? Don't turn your back on if you're, if you're not sleeping very well at night. I mean, after that shooting, I probably didn't sleep well for a week, you know, because you're constantly thinking about it. You know, every time that you go to sleep, you close your eyes, boom, comes back up again because it was such a 
a, a prominent, important moment in your life. You know, it was, it was, a, you know, a life threatening event. So, um, and I didn't take that very seriously. And I wish I had of in the end, I believe I turned out okay. I was able to continue caring and, and executing my duties, making good judgments. But uh, if, if anybody who has gone through a traumatic event is having trouble, you know, leaving that and they keep thinking about it over and over again and they're losing sleep from it, things of that nature, you know, ask for help because there is help out there to, 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 uh, uh, to assist in these kinds of things, especially if you're a law enforcement officer. You know, I just got back uh, last night from San Diego and was honored to uh, address the Public Safety Peer Support Association of California. 750 f- first responders as well as peer support responders. Um, and and I told them the story about Kevin, you know, getting shot, my partner getting shot, Kevin Stevens, and what we went through with that. And, and then, um, you know, we didn't have EAP back then. But a senior agent came by and he's like, listen, did you go counseling yet? And I'm like, no, I'm not, I haven't gone. I'm not going. He's like, you got to go. You got to go. And he, you know, he's bitching at you and telling you everything. And I'm like, okay, okay, I got it. And he walks right off and, you know, you're thinking, screw that. I'm a tough guy. I can take this. You know what? I had dreams about Kevin shooting. I retired in 2013. I haven't had a dream since I retired. And they weren't frequent, you know, as you go on in your career. But he was shot in 1989 and I still had a dream in 2013. Now, who's, who's the dumbass there? You know, it was me because I didn't go get that support. So, you know, as I went on up through the ranks, uh, I got back to Atlanta as an ASAC, and and I had been there a couple months, and Rob Murphy's group goes out and, and does a deal, and they've got to kill a guy who got a few shots off of them, and they lit him up. And four guys ended up shooting the bad guy. When I got on the scene, one guy's visibly shaking. I mean, his body is shaking. He is a ball of nerves. Two guys were, you know, they were still coherent and everything, but, uh, you know, you could tell that they were concerned about what was going to happen. And then the fourth guy who had been involved in shootings, other shootings, he's asleep in his car. <laughs> he's okay with everything. And so when it came time to go to counseling, I didn't send them to counseling. I took them to counseling. And the guy that had been involved in shootings before was not happy at all about it. You know, I've been through this shit. You know, I know what's going to happen. I'm good to go. It's like, yep, that's fine because, you know, you're going to make, we're going to make sure you're going to the freaking counseling. And I would walk them to the door and make sure they went in. And I sat outside in the waiting room until they were done. That's how important it is. So what you said, Dave, you know, I mean, we love hearing the stories, but for our, for our first responders out there listening, that's the takeaway from today's interview is if you need the help, get the damn help. I mean, if you're sitting in a dark room and, and you're drinking or you're taking drugs or you're contemplating, heaven forbid, suicide, my God, there's so many people out there that will help you. Just ask. Please ask. It's and if you're it. a manager, a supervisor to an individual who may be experiencing that kind of, of difficulty and struggle, identify it and don't be afraid to speak up. I mean, there are ways to do that, right, without completely pissing off the employee. but as you said, Steve, taking them with you to that resource instead of just telling them, hey, you've got, a, you've got an appointment, you need to go to that resource. It makes a huge difference. And those managers just don't be afraid to speak up and, and help those people, even if initially they're not asking for the help. Yeah, I tell you, and we both, we, you were talking about this for a long time, talking about suicide was taboo. And look, I've lost more friends to suicide than line of duty. Mm-hmm. You know, and just it's the it's the 
COVID being the exception, but suicide was the number one killer of cops. You know, it has been, unfortunately, for many years, more than accidents, more than officer-involved shootings. So that's why I asked you about that, too, because uh, Murph and Kevin didn't talk about their shooting. First time they talked about it together was on our podcast. Yeah, believe it or not. And we were partners. He shot in 89. We were partners till 91. And they remembered things differently. Some of the, not, not all the stuff, but, but some of the key things, it's like, no, I thought it was this. No, it was this. And so it's amazing. Like, see, even over time, Hey, look, let's, let's not get away from this before we talk about, um, I want to hear the story about the Bahamas. So you said that's in your book. So. (laughs) Oh, and I got to tell you, man, you got to check out this book. If you love, you know, if you're curious about being a DEA agent and excitement that goes along with it, or you're a cop that just likes to (laughs) read about adventures, you got to read Dave's book, man. He's got so many, some of these things I didn't know about there. I didn't know you were a snow capper. Uh, And, and we haven't even said this yet. Dave made it the highest ranks within DEA. Yeah, I was very fortunate to, to finish up as, as, as the uh, chief of enforcement operations. And I enjoyed that job very much, but getting to uh, the Bahamas. Yeah. It was not long after that uh, shooting with Sammy, that um, I uh, was offered a uh, 30-day assignment in the Bahamas. Of course, the Bahamas was through a reporting structure, even though the Bahamas is its own sovereign republic in DEA, the DEA Bahamas personnel reported to the Miami Field Division simply because of the proximity between Miami, upper management of Miami, and and the Bahamas. So, um one of the bosses, a guy named Sam Bilbro, uh, approached me not long after that shooting and asked if I felt like I wanted to uh, go on an assignment in the Bahamas. And I thought, yeah, who wouldn't want to do that, right? That sounds like a, a free <laughs> vacation yeah, to me. Bahamas, yeah. Yeah, man. So we yeah, ended yeah, up, um, uh, I ended up going with two other agents uh, to Georgetown, which is a little bit farther south than uh, Nassau, and spending 30 days in the Bahamas uh, doing patrols on UH-60 Black Hawk helicopters and some uh, Dolphin uh, U.S. Coast Guard uh, helicopters in a uh, interdiction uh, operation. It's a program that uh, we had worked with the Bahamian officials through their strike force. And it was terrific. It was probably the nicest 30 days I ever had on the job. Steve, did you ever get a chance to do a, a bat assignment? Yeah. After Kevin got shot, I went down for 90 days. Yeah. Yeah. I was the same way. They said, Hey, would you go to the Bahamas for 90 days? I'm like, put me on the plane today. You can send me my clothes later this week. (laughs) Hey, now let me ask you something though. Is that, was that DEA's way of helping you guys decompress from something? It was. It was for me. Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt that the, the leadership right there in Miami recognized that this was a great way to kind of just chill, right? Decompress and chill from that traumatic experience and do something, you know, to give yourself a little time to get your 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 sea legs back and uh and, and get, get back, back on the, the job. saddle again. That's right, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, but but we did work. I mean, it wasn't just fishing and uh, scuba diving. I mean, we actually were on those helicopters uh, practically every day um, and oftentimes responding to intelligence that DEA Nassau, because through the embassy or in the embassy, we had a full-time office of probably, I don't know, four 
maybe five uh, uh, special agents that were living in Nassau um, permanently. So whatever intelligence they had, they would forward to to us in, in the BAT program, and then we would go ahead and work with our strike force officers and respond to it. In some cases, there were uh, you know, sea routes that were being used from island to island. Um, they had information from informants that maybe a load was coming in on an aircraft, and we would be out there to interdict them. So we had we had a lot of success as well as a lot of fun. Well, having been down there in the Bahamas a few times with guests of the Royal Bahamian Police, those guys were fun. Um, you know what was really crazy, though, is they have a different mentality down there. It's like they would show up and they would check out their gun. It was like the community gun. Hey, I have a gun. They would just stick it in their pants. There's like, there's no leather, not like what we did. I got the gun, man. Let's go. You know, and then they would go out and they'd come back and they just put it back on the hook when they were done. It was like, yeah, but you didn't know if they had any bullets in that gun. (laughs) (laughs) It reminds me of a great story I I have to share. And it's about that. Uh, We had a response where we knew a guy was coming into a particular dock on a particular island at a particular time. And, and this uh, is the story I was talking about at the beginning of your interview. Right, right. And what was great about this is it was one guy who was a fugitive. We knew he was a drug smuggler. And uh, he basically was one of the guys that was taxing coke from island to island because you didn't want to keep it in one place very long for, for fear that, you know, law enforcement would get the news of it and come down and hit it and take it. So he had a variety of, of caches and, and, and local spots to hide it. So he was, he was supposed to be at this particular dot. And um, we ended up on a Blackhawk circling around, and they uh, exfilled myself and two strike force guys uh, from the Royal Bahamian Police. And uh, we were out there in the woods waiting for uh, this vessel to come up. And there were two women that were out there cleaning turtles, sea turtles that had been fished and they sold it on the market. And they, as soon as this guy ended up showing up, they began yelling police to try to warn him. But it was his motor was running. He had a couple, I don't know, he probably had four or five, 200 horsepower Evan Roods, right? He didn't hear him. So we ran up there, we grabbed the guy, and we ended up arresting him after tossing him around and he tossing us around. I ended up almost ended up in the water next to the boat, but we ended up arresting him. And uh, he tries to kick one of the Bahamian Strike Force guys. So the Bahamian Strike Force guys takes two steps back with his M16 and fires it into the dock, right? thinking he's going to quiet this guy down. Well, he misses the dock, and he hits the guy right underneath the kneecap, severing the guy's leg completely. I already had him handcuffed, and I was holding his arm with one hand. And, of course, this guy, his, I don't think he was Charlie or something. He, you know, he was about 250 pounds. He leaned to the left. He leaned to the right. I couldn't hold him up, and boom, down he went. So there was another traumatic situation that we had to tourniquet him up, keep the bleeding to stop, and it turns out in the end we saved his life. We we got him into the uh, the helicopter, uh, the Black Hawk. We got the Black Hawk to Nassau where he got some trauma care, and uh, although he lost the leg, we saved his life. And to this day, I understand he's running around uh, well known as uh, Peg Leg. 
Oh, yeah. So, you know, and it's, I know our listeners are probably thinking, how morbid did Murph sitting there laughing at this? But it's funny. It wasn't funny back then, but it's funny. Well, he shouldn't have kicked the cop, but I really was a bit uh, uh, unhappy with the uh, strike force officer. He's a young kid. He was probably 19, 18, 19 years old with an M16. And they're fully autos, right? So yeah. I gave him a slap upside the head because he could have as easily took my kneecap out as he did the uh, uh, the perp. Yeah. Hell, he could have stitched him all the way from his belly button up to the top of his head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I guarantee you, knowing those guys like I know them, probably what would happen if they went back, one of the inspectors or whatever, just said, look, don't do that again. Just bad kid. Give me that gun. And that was probably the end of the investigation. You owe us for the bullet you fired. <laughs> That's right. You've got to reimburse us. <laughs> well, you know, there, there was a great supervisor, may he rest in heaven, Pat Shea. Who, um, good man. Good great man. story. Uh, he he was one of the supervisors in Nassau at this time, and coincidentally, he was also the responding supervisor to AD in my shooting. And Pat's job was to take me under his wing after everything was was settled, and and you know the air was cleared, and make sure that I got home safe that night. So I knew Pat quite well from from that shooting. And um, as soon as we landed and we, we carted Charlie, you know, one leg Charlie off of the uh, Blackhawk and, uh, and, and ourselves took a couple of steps in the direction of the hangar, I see Pat walking toward me quite briskly and he wraps his big arm around me because he played, uh, you know, for the uh, UNC Tar Heels. He was an offensive guard. He was a rather you know, stout stout man he stuck that big arm around me and he squeezed and he said you weren't the shooter this time were you and i said no not this time and he was like that would have been a lot of paperwork oh yeah that's pat and this is a guy that we all love man this is a guy that if you wanted to emulate somebody that would have been a good man to emulate yeah he, pat he was a great guy right. Yeah. Well, let's let's make sure we finish up and talk. Like I said, let's you know we'll we'll put the book up on our website. And, and I'm amazed at the number of people we've had on. How many books we've got, you know, from people because our our policy is we don't put a book up because somebody else wrote it. We only put a book up if the person on the interview with us is the author. So uh, the Noble Experiment: True Stories and Hard Truths from My Time in the DEA. You can find it on Amazon. Kind of a final thing as we wind down here. What are you doing now? Well, I retired in 2011. I was the chief of enforcement operations in Washington, D.C., loved the job, but um, I became eligible to retire. Uh, I didn't really think that there was any great uh, opportunity for me to uh, rotate from headquarters. Uh, so I got the itch to kind of try something different, and I decided that I was just going to hang up my shingle and work in corporate security and corporate uh, consulting. So um, I did retire in 2011, and uh, I just started my own business and picked up maybe about, I don't know, 30, 35 clients over a five-year period and just worked with them, mostly with my, expert my expertise overseas involving um, American companies working in Mexico or uh, in, in, in South America, Central America, there are a lot of us companies working in the textile area, uh, down in Central America. And of course in Mexico with those maquiladores. So they needed good security programs that they didn't have downrange. And I helped them 
uh, work those up. So I spent 11 years doing that, and I finally retired in January of this year. So now I'm trying to create a new little farm, and uh, uh, so far with four goats and uh, 10 chickens, I'm as busy as I want to be. Well, it sounds like you're four, four goats closer to a major goat rope. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny because when when Dave and I were swapping messages here, scheduling his interview today, the last thing he did is say, "Hey, got to go now. I got to feed the goats." And he sent me a picture of the goats. I got to show you this picture too. Uh, you know, another thing that he Dave can't hear us right. He just took his headset off, set off, but um, he made it to where he was the boss of DEA Mexico. So. Um, and he's back on here with, but Dave, I just told him, everybody, you made it up to the boss of the, the DEA boss in Mexico City. Uh, okay. Now it, that picture's not so good because you got crappy internet out there in the woods. It's party line internet. What the hell are we looking at? Yeah. Uh, it's a couple of kid Nubian goats, man. Those were a day old goats and I was holding both of them, brother and sister. Oh, Sorry you missed it. Oh, oh I can, I can kind of see it now. Okay. I see, oh, yeah. I see it now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I keep busy doing things other than law enforcement and security work now. Well, you know, you still got a website up for your uh, security work. Well, you know, you never say never, right? So I always keep that up and just out there in case that one call comes, you know, uh, Elon Musk, uh, you know, needs to throw throw me a million dollars to uh, introduce him to somebody in Ukraine. You know, um, I had the pleasure of hanging out with Dave here, what, about less than two years ago, you and I and Ernie Batista got together down in Jacksonville, Florida to attend the memorial service for another DEA hero, uh, Jerry Reinhart, who we all knew and loved. And I got to tell you, man, just the three of us sitting out at the hotel that one night, you guys were sipping, we were smoking cigars. That's the kind of experiences you love now. You sit there and you tell war stories. You know, you're with good friends, you're with lifelong friends, just kicking back, enjoying life, thanking the good Lord that you survived all the bullshit we went through, man. There, I haven't had a better time since that time, Dave. No, I agree with you. And and as you guys are doing something completely different now than you had started out in your careers, I feel like I'm doing something completely different. And it's 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 great, you know? It's it just, it's... It's a new chapter, and that's a that's another lesson, uh, Morgan, that I could say about what have I learned in the 25 years uh, of, of with DEA is that whenever your time comes, um, whether you're in law enforcement or not, don't be afraid to change up and do something new because it can be really, really fun. Well, you talk it about is. doing something different. No, uh, 25 years ago, I was talking until people told me, shut the hell up. But that's still going on now with Murph. So not much <laughs> has changed there. Hey, it's not just me. Our listeners write in and tell you, shut, the, shut hell the hell up. Hey, if you notice, I've been really good. When you listen to these podcasts now, we got long stretches where the guest talks. And I just, I, I add value to the discussion now. So, Well, you know what, Dave, Dave you got to understand, he's talking about our interview with Derek Maltz. And you know you can't get a word in edgewise when Derek's talking. Well, you, you know, Derek <laughs> talked an hour. I, I timed it because I listened to both shows of that podcast. And he would talk an hour and 52 minutes without a breath. I thought I would <laughs> might be able to talk a minute in 52 seconds instead of an hour and 52 minutes. But yeah, he was oh, amazing, Lord. man. And, and, you know, I mean, he's like that. I mean, it doesn't matter. And both of you had worked with him and you knew him and, uh, yep. and I, people would think, Oh, this guy can't be this way. He's, he's just 
pumped for the show. He is this way. Let me tell you, folks, I told, like I said in the outro, I warned you. When we got Derek going, we asked him a question. I was able to go make coffee, run upstairs, take a quick <laughs> shower, get dressed, come back down. Derek was still talking. He didn't miss a beat. Uh, but everybody loves him. Yeah. You, know, you meet him, you love him. And he's doing yeah. some great well, hey, things even after the job. And that's what we all aspire to do is just still contribute in some way or another, right? It's find that cause that you can, uh, something you can still make your little, make a mark in the world, right? So we'll do that. So, yeah, I just want to, I want to say, Morgan, that, yep. uh, I mean, we only touched on a couple of stories here that Dave has. We got to bring book, it back. Yeah. Got to talk yeah, about the you book. You guys, please check out his book. It is one of the best books I've read. I, not just because he's my friend and, and a brother police officer, but uh, it's one of those books you can't pull down, put down because he's, it's one story after another. <laughs> and I've known you since. Uh, it's available on Amazon and Kindle. Um, I have a website, uh, www.a-noble-experiment.com. So anybody who's interested, just, you know, you, you should be able to pick it up on search. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm proud to sell it to you. It's, uh, it was just a joy to do it, you know, when I had nothing else going on during COVID. <laughs> you did an excellent job. I'll tell yeah, you, brother. You this was good. Did. All right. Well, hey, look. Um, this is us saluting you, first of all, for being there for your partner, A.D. Thank you. For doing the right thing, um, for serving this great country of ours for 25 years, and even afterwards, you know, making it safe for us to go to Mexico and do things like that. But most of all, thank you for writing that book, because it's like anything else. It's like long after we're gone, the stories will always be there. And we're, you know how it is. Everybody's going to be sitting around that proverbial fire, either now or at that great, you know, beer hall in the sky. And they're going, do you remember the time when... Yeah. And I, and I have to tell you, your podcast is like a live book, right? So everything that you guys are covering for so many different people, including yourselves, your own stories, it's, it's, it's there, you know, it's there in perpetuity. So congratulate both of you for a great show, uh, a great podcast, and I'm really, really proud and happy for you. Thank you, brother. Well, we're proud to have folks like you on here. So this is us. People can't see this, but this is us saluting Dave Gaddis, author extraordinaire, DEA special agent in charge, and just look, all around hero, and we love having heroes on, and big, most more than anything else, thank you for being there for your partner, AD, and taking care of him. Mm -hmm. um, that's, the, that's the biggest, if there's a badge of honor anybody can, get, can do is say, look, I was there, I, I backed up my partner, I was there for him, and we survived because of that. So this is us saluting you, brother. Thanks, guys. Yeah, Dave, it's a, this is a, a golden opportunity to tell you um, that you are a true American hero. And I know you won't admit to it because nobody ever does. And that's what makes you a freaking hero. But God bless you, brother. Thank you for coming on the show. Game of Crimes. They've got to stay in touch. Stay in touch. Okay. You hang right there. Don't you guys go anywhere. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. You know, we go back to episode six, I think it was, Kevin Stevens, and we talk about Kevin had an injury that should have kept him off the job, mm -hmm. but it didn't. Mm -hmm. His partner had an injury that would have kept probably anybody else off the job. You lose an eye, and it didn't. And you look at what Dave did to save his partner and the way they handled these things. Uh, I mean, you go into the job knowing stuff like this can happen, but you never wake up that morning going, okay, today's the day that's going to happen today. Right. And you know what? You go into the position, especially these kind of jobs, Dave risked his own life to save his partner. And afterwards, there's no expectation of any return. That's what you do for each other. 
So he put himself in the, in harm's way to save Dave, uh, to save A.D. Wright's life. A.D. was a phenomenal guy. I knew him in Miami. Uh, he'd just come back on the job. with uh, He'd lost his eye from the shooting, made it up to the highest ranks of DEA. He was the special agent in charge of the Miami Field Division, one of our largest field divisions in the United States. So uh, just the stories are awe-inspiring. I learned things about Dave that I didn't know. I loved his book. I highly recommend The Noble Experiment. Uh, it's one of those books, if you're into law enforcement type things, you, you'll start reading it. And you'll have a hard time putting it down. We know, Morgan, you and I, Chris Feistel has talked about in there who's been on the show before. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of old friends uh, that we told some funny stories about. So check out The Noble Experiment by Mr. Dave Gaddis. I'm, I'm pretty sure you're going to like it. Yeah, you are. We'll feature it on our page. But hey, guys, once again, you know, we're bringing you the stories you don't hear anywhere else but right here. And what you'll find out in the upcoming next episodes and as we work on, just kind of want to tease you. We'll let you know how long the break is going to be. But we're looking at taking a break in December. Why? Because we've been doing this for a year and a half straight. You never missed an episode. We're putting out content on Patreon. Never missed an episode. So we kind of need some time to retool, recharge. we got a couple ideas. So we'll be telling you a little bit more about that. We're not going anywhere. Right. And in fact, Murph, I had a great idea. I think one of the things we'll do to tease people with some of our great content is we will not go away. I think what we'll do is we'll find some select episodes from our Patreon channel and publish those instead for all of these who are not consumers yep. of patreon.com slash game of crimes. And we'll show you what you're missing. So by the time January comes, it's the gift that keeps on giving, right? You're going to want to give this as a Christmas gift to everybody you know and people you don't. Absolutely. And it's, we love doing this. We've still got a ton of, we've got a list that's a mile long of potential guests to bring on more heroic stories of the first responders of the law enforcement officers around, not just in the United States, but around the world as well. We want to bring in some uh, Aussies and some New Zealanders, some Kiwis after the first of the year. We got to get our Canadian friends back on here because once again, they've let the UK pass them up in the yep. number of listeners. So we got to get some more Canadians on here. Plus we want to bring in some of our UK friends, um, but just, Check us out on Patreon. And let us know what you think about it. If you think we're doing something stupid, you can tell us. We won't get mad at you, but don't get mad at us either. We can still well, be I'll just hunt there. you down and let the air out of your tires. No big deal. I won't hurt them. I won't cut them. I'll just let the air out. Or or I'll put you on the phone with Morgan, and he will talk to your ears bleed. So, hey, I come and check us out sleep. on Patreon. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, fine. Threaten them with me. Anyway, so, guys, head on over, though. Uh, like we say, let's uh, great stuff. If you like the episode, give us those five stars. Head on over to Apple and Spotify and do that. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. Uh, that's where we posted Dave's book about this, and we've got videos from Tim Stommel coming up in our uh, probably next episode. Follow us on that thing called social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. And if you're feeling benevolent, uh, just go to paypal.com, use our email, Podcast at gmail.com, or paypal.me slash Game of Crimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show. And we want to thank you guys once again. Seriously, give us your feedback on the formats that you're going to see coming up. We're going to try them a couple different ways. And let us know what you like. We're trying to get, we're, we're looking at the reality of things. We're looking at numbers and we're looking at what the top 100 podcasts do. And so we're mm -hmm. learning some lessons from that about episode length and how, how often do they come out. And Murph, I know we had some people say, why do we have to wait till Thursday? And we're kind of going, okay, let's try it. Let's try. We'll release part one on Monday, part two on Tuesday, mm -hmm. and you'll get them back to back. Yep. Yeah. It's, and we're trying to bring you the best possible content we can. We need you to tell your friends. Uh, we want to bring out the biggest audience we can possibly get. These stories deserve to be told. The, the, the public needs to know about the heroes, the unsung heroes that are out there every day protecting all of us. So God bless you for being with us today. Spread the word, please. Yep. And thank you guys once again for being a major player 
and the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all on the internet, on the interwebs, and anywhere in podcast kingdom, the Game of Crimes. 